Have y'all noticed that the leaves were started at the top, and now this week they're at the bottom? And they are now dead? I'm here to kill the series, evidently. So, so yeah. Um, uh, I wanted to start out this morning uh, by first introducing myself. My name is Jay. I'm the pastor for formation and discipleship here at Emmaus. So if I haven't had an opportunity to meet you, I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad you are visiting us here at Emmaus, where we believe in practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. Um, speaking of fall and things on the ground, uh, Friday night, uh, I joined uh, many of the men here um, from Emmaus at Victory Mountain Camp and enjoyed sleeping on the ground um, as it started raining at four o'clock in the morning. Um, most of us were okay. Uh, we were in our tents. However, we're st- is Tyler here this morning? Poor Tyler. Tyler was a trooper. He was in his hammock until it started raining, at which point he started to, um, I guess, go into his own lament of knocking on tents at four o'clock in the morning to let someone in, let him in. So he is a trooper. Uh, We are grateful for him. Um, As we have discussed and as we have been going over these last few weeks, we have been in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, a book of wisdom, uh, literature, a part of the Old Testament, and exploring what the writer has to say about the meaning of life. The great philosophical question that we are all trying to answer, what is our purpose? What is the point of being here on earth. Um, And in that, we learn about uh, the toil of mankind. We learn about the meaninglessness, or hevel, as we have spoken before in the last uh, few weeks, and the meaning of uh, hevel, which is vanity or breath, that our life here on earth is meaningless. In the words of um, our very, very wise and astute middle schooler, Gavin, cones, uh, existential dread. The existential dread that covers us as humans. So before we begin today, I want to practice centering ourselves. Um, I am not immune or unaware of the fact that many, many of you have come in today feeling the weight of toil, feeling the weight of what it means to be human and the reality of the world around us. So I'm going to ask you this morning, and you might think this is a little weird, so just go with me, just go with me, be patient. Um, If you would just put your feet, both feet flat on the ground, and palms resting on your legs or knees facing up, to close your eyes. And this is the part that's a little strange, I want you to think about a color. And I want you to think about a color that is very calming. And I want you to imagine that color, that calming presence, whatever it may be, as breath that is right in front of your face. And I want you to slowly, within a count of three seconds, imagine yourself breathing in. Breathing in that that color. 
and holding your breath for a few seconds and then exhaling. Lord, I believe that you are in this place. And Father, I believe that your spirit calls us to breathe, to breathe in the calmness of your presence, to echo the words of your son that your burden is light. And Father, that you know the true meaning of what it means to be fully human and fully alive. And Father, in the midst of the brokenness that we feel as human beings and the toil that we feel, you are there with us. And Father, you have offered to carry our burdens. So I pray that this morning our hearts would be aligned to that reality. God, if there is hard soil, God, that your spirit would pour out a sense of softening to receive your word and Lord to cultivate our souls and our minds that something may grow there or that it would continue to cultivate what you have already planted. We have been growing over these last few weeks. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start this morning talking about Minecraft. Do we have any gamers in the room? Anybody play Minecraft? Come on, be proud, be brave. I'm with you. I'm with you. So for those who don't know what Minecraft is, Minecraft is a sandbox game developed by Mojang Studios and originally re released in 2009. The game was created by Marcus Notch Person, uh, basically in a Java programming language, following several early private testing versions and was first made public in May of 2009 before being fully released in November of 2011. In Minecraft, players explore a blocky, procedurally generated three-dimensional world with virtually infinite terrain, hence sandbox. It's a sandbox. You go and you, you play, you build, you explore. Um, depending on the chosen game mode, players can fight hostile mobs as well as cooperate or compete against other players in the same world. Minecraft has received critical acclaim, winning several awards and being cited by some as one of the greatest video games ever created. Social media, parodies, adaptations, merchandise, and the annual Minecon conventions played prominent roles in popularizing the game. The game has also been used in educational environments to teach chemistry, computer-aided design, and computer science. Minecraft has become the best-selling video game in history with over 300 million copies sold and nearly 140 million monthly active players as of 2023. So Mr. Person, who developed this game, in 2014, he sold his company, Mojang, and the Minecraft intellectual property for $2.5 billion to Microsoft. And after selling Mojang and alone with Minecraft, Person bought a 23,000 square foot mansion in Beverly Hills for $70 million, reportedly outbidding Beyonce and Jay-Z. <clears throat> the guy who created Minecraft has more money than Beyonce and Jay-Z. But even those ultra-luxury digs weren't enough to make him happy. Some of you may know this, it went viral. In a series of tweets in 2015, Person wrote, the problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying, and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. He went on sharing his experience with his newfound wealth. Speaking of Ibiza, Spencer brought up Ibiza a few weeks ago. 
hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. He continued, he shared, part of the isolation apparently comes from having nothing to do, just sitting around waiting for friends and family. In Sweden, I will sit around and wait for my friends with jobs and families to have time to do stuff, watching my reflection in the monitor. Person feels unappreciated by the workers of his former company, who he said, the ma- who, who he, said he made sure were taken care of in the sale to Microsoft. When we sold the company, he said, the biggest effort went into making sure the employees got taken care of, and they all hate me now. And apparently, part of his loneliness comes from not being able to date the woman he would like to, because of his wealth. She apparently wanted to date a normal person. Found a great girl, but she's afraid of me and my lifestyle, and went with a normal person instead. He would later conclude, people who made sudden success are telling me this is normal and will pass. That's good to know. I guess I'll go take a shower then. We see the creator of Minecraft, this man who got so much wealth, so much opportunity, probably worked very, 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 very hard on this game and saw the success and the fruit of it, now reaping the benefit of it and having no one to share it with. In Ecclesiastes 4, verses 4 through 12, it says, And I saw that all the toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The writer in Ecclesiastes is asking us a question. And the question is, what are we toiling for? What are we working for? What is our aim? What do we hope to get when we reach the other side? As it has been said, many believe that the grass is greener on the other side. So what do we do when we get there? The pursuit of success. The reality is, mankind naturally looks out for his best interests. It is unfortunately built and baked into the reality of our sinful nature and who we are, whether we want to admit that or not. I know that many of us would wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, I I think that I look out for other people pretty often. I'm I'm pretty altruistic. But the reality is, most of us are more selfish than we realize. For those of us who are married, we realize that very quickly. For those of us who have kids, we really realize that very quickly. I want to take you now into college. I want to take you into an ethics course. I want to introduce you to the philosopher Thomas Hobbes. I don't know of any of you who have had to read Thomas Hobbes, but he wrote a piece called Leviathan. Uh, he was a 17th century philosopher. Leviathan actually references another book of the Bible, a character in the wisdom literature of Job. And Thomas Hobbes, though very pessimistic, he said this, He said, of the voluntary acts of every man, the object is some good of himself. In his work in Leviathan, the philosopher Hobbes tried to envision what society would be like in a state of nature, meaning uh, the state of humanity in its most, most primal state, before any civil state or rule of law. Hobbes was influenced a lot about this with the sectarian violence that was happening in his own time. And his conclusion was dispiriting. Life would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. A war of every man against every man. 
Nonetheless, as all people are equal in physical, not a moral sense, possessing a passionate love of survival, the right of nature, and some degree of rationality, which is the law of nature, Hobbes concluded that a viable working society would arise as an equilibrium between these competing forces. The logic is simple. Any person's right of nature justifies violence against everybody else. Consequently, in the interest of personal survival, people will come around to agreeing that they should renounce their right to use violence. However, this yields up a tense and unstable equilibrium. The moment one party deviates from their promise, all will deviate and war restarts. So Jay, what the heck did you just say? The reality is what Hobbes was trying to say is we are so selfish that we are willing to acquiesce to each other's requests to work with each other because we don't want to have to deal with the consequences. And that in itself is selfishness. Now, many philosophers have tried to debunk Hobbes and um, don't agree with him, believe that he's a little more pessimistic. But I agree with him a little. Unfortunately, in our innate desires, we start with self. That is a part of our brokenness. That is a part of the sin nature that we have to wrestle with and come to agreement with and to deal with. We want to believe in this myth of progress that as society goes forward that we are getting more altruistic, we are helping each other more, but the reality is that's not the case. It's just not. Now, when we talk about what the writer is talking about in this book, he is not putting an indictment against the working class. So when he talks about toiling and working very hard and, and working with upward mobility, <clears throat> he's not talking about people who have to work. We have to understand that scripture tells us that we should not have idle hands. He's not indicting the working class or the poor, and he cites that from Proverbs 6.10. He is observing the vanity of those who could work less or lack the motivation to use their wealth for greater human endeavors. They are motivated by their greed and their envy which so often many of us are. We see something, that looks nice. I wouldn't mind having that. Well, that, that makes me feel a particular way about myself. I feel like I need to have that. And this drives us. This drives us in our motivation to work and to gain and to achieve what we want to achieve. And part of that is control. We want to have control. We want to be able to move and to dictate our life on our terms through our own autonomy which is increasingly a cultural philosophy that our culture has embraced. Now, most of us would assume this is not us, okay? And perhaps so. However, I would pause to say that perhaps there are several, if not more, here today who must wrestle with this idea. That you have the ability to say no. That you have the ability to drop back. But yet there is something deep within you there's something fueling that need to work, that need to achieve, that need for validation. And we have to ask ourselves, what are we working for? What is the pursuit? What is the goal? What are we hoping to gain? Now, we need to understand that work has its place. And God has a perspective on labor. While acknowledging the potential negative motivations behind toll, it's essentially it's essential to recognize that work itself is not condemned. <clears throat> we were designed to work. In fact, God designed humanity to work and find purpose in it. In Genesis 2.15, it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. We need to 
realize that Eden is not what we may have experienced or have thought it, could, it is through our Sunday school classes, our felt board education that we got maybe in the 90s or 2000s for all those millennials out there. The reality is Eden was wild. It was lush. It was full of raw materials. And when God put man in the garden, he put him there to work it. Not to rest on the laurels of what God has done, but to celebrate what God has done by working the land that had been provided to him. And in that way, he had also placed Eve there to be a helpmate, to work alongside Adam. Again, there was raw potential. The late and great Tim Keller says this. He said, work is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. So if you're asking, what is the point of work? This is it. Your purpose here on earth when it comes to work is to be a part of what God is doing. In many ways, it's as if he set the Lego blocks out in front of you and said, build. Build, do, create. If you want to use an instruction manual, I'm not going to hurt you, like be bent down on you about that, okay? But if you're a master builder, go build. All my Lego nerds, silence. But that's essentially what God did. He put the canvas in front of us. He gave us the paint, and he said, go paint. Again, Eden was wild and lush, potential. Man was placed there to tame and to build with God. One of the beautiful things about scripture is we start in a garden at the beginning of the narrative. We end in a city at the very end of it. Eden was never meant to stay a garden. It was to be enhanced and built upon where we believe and trust that one day Jesus will return and we will, we will reign in a city with him, building alongside with him. But there are dangers of excessive toil. There is a balancing act that we have to maintain when it comes to our work. And one of those things that we have to understand is that we were never created to cultivate an identity around work. We were created to work within the boundaries that God has set. And we've talked a lot about that here at Emmaus, and it's one of our rhythms. Rest. Sabbath. Sabbath is not optional. It's not. You have to stop. Um, Rich Velotis has a wonderful book, um, The Deeply Formed Life, and he talks about Sabbath within his own family. That in some ways, when Sabbath comes, it's almost like a timer coming off. It's like taking a test, right? A time test. And the teacher says, hands up, pencils down. That should be our mindset with Sabbath when it comes to our work. Hands up, pencils down. It's time to rest. It's time to engage with the creator and with the relationships that he's placed within us and among us. God has given us a unique gifting abilities that move us towards greater purposes. And those are found outside of a mentality towards work in which we are trying to find our identity. God gives us our identity and it moves us to work for his purposes. Um, our wonderful JMC, John Mark Comer. Praise the Lord. Let me put that slide up. It's a good looking man. We all love JMC. He writes in his book, Garden City, Work, Rest, and the Art of Being Human. 
He said, I would argue the desire to be great was put there by the creator himself. After all, we're made in his image. The problem is this desire, which in its embryonic, innocent state is so, so right, is quickly warped and soiled and bent out of shape by the ego. We devolve from a desire to be great to a desire to be thought of as great, from a desire to serve the weak to a desire to be served by the weak, from a desire to save the world to a desire to have it. This is the unfortunate progression of our culture's idea of work, the slippery slope when we separate ourselves from the work that God has called us to. When we toil for the sake of ourselves, our ego, our pride, or the sanitation of our own insecurities and deficiencies, we operate from the shell of our intended design. We were called into something more, more than ourselves, more than just making the paycheck. Verses five and six, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. This is the reference to Proverbs. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Now again, this is a balancing act. God has called us to work. And there's a foolishness with idle hands. There's a foolishness to sit, to consume, to hide from what we've been called to do. We were not created to be idle. We were not created to sit still. We were created and given a mandate to work alongside the Lord. In an article from BBC Science Focus, it tells us that movement oxygenates the blood, which is good for your brain and mental health. And this is an obvious reason why we should get up and move and, and, to, and to exercise our bodies. However, a non-obvious reason that, uh, reason that we need to work and to move is that our brains were built this is scientific, we're built to navigate unfamiliar territory. And they don't do well when we are not challenged. For those who have retired, science has seen a stark difference in those who have retired early and resorted to just simply enjoying life, sitting around, and those who picked up a, a, a hobby or, or an endeavor after they retired. And when they actually autopsied the brains of these two different people, one, one brain, you could tell that it had atrophied. And that actually the cells that regulate against cancer cells had actually diminished. Versus the brains of those who had worked and continued to endeavor for something were much healthy, much stronger. And actually, in some cases, in some studies, had the same, had the same effects naturally pharmaceutically of combating against memory loss or degenerative diseases. The reality is we were designed to be problem solvers and creators. Our hands were made to work. Our brains were made to think. To have to, um, to, to cartograph, to map unfamiliar territory. To ask hard questions and to seek answers. In verses 7 and 8, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. It was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For who am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaninglessness, a miserable business. It may sound cliche, but it is the truth, and it must be said over and over again. You were not made to do life alone. 
Humanity was not created in a vacuum to do life in isolation and by himself or herself. Adam Adam was given Eve and Eve given for Adam. And there was a shared mandate between the two of them. And God was a part of that relationship. He worked alongside of them. So there is a futility in solitary pursuits. When we think, I'm just going to go it alone, I'm going to do it my way, I'm not going to have to deal with anyone else. There's a futility to that. Though working in isolation was not our design, our culture continues to create spaces where we operate in a state of loneliness. And what do we mean by loneliness? Well, as defined, loneliness defined by mental health professionals, is a gap between the level of connectedness that you want and what you have. It is not the same as social isolation, which is codified in the social sciences as a measure of a person's context. Loneliness is a subjective feeling. People can have a lot of contact and still be lonely or be perfectly content by themselves. Loneliness operates like thirst or hunger. It's fine for a moment, but it's not sustainable and it's not good for your health over a long time. Before the pandemic, the United States Surgeon General Vivek Murthy said the country was experiencing an epidemic of loneliness, driven by the accelerated pace of life and the spread of technology into all of our social interactions. With this acceleration, he said, efficiency and convenience have edged out the time-consuming messiness of real relationships. Real relationships require engagement. They require sacrifice. They require a giving of oneself. They require the awkwardness of navigating uncomfortable territory with with another. They require, again, vulnerability. And with the way that technology has advanced and the way that our systems are set up, we have done our best to insulate ourselves from the reality of being vulnerable with one another. The science shows this. In lab experiments, lonely people who were exposed to a cold virus were more likely to develop symptoms than people who were not lonely. An often cited meta-analysis by Julian Holt Lundstedt of BYU compared the risk effects of loneliness, isolation, and weak social social networks to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Yet again, paradoxically, we have the ability to be more connected than ever, yet we are more lonely than ever. Going back to the Surgeon General Vivek H. Murthy and his book, Together, Why Social Connection Holds the Key to Better Health, Higher Performance, and Greater Happiness, he says this. He says, to be real is to be vulnerable, and this takes courage, especially if we believe that others will like us more if we hide or distort who we truly are. Technology can promote this belief by making it easy to pose online as someone braver, happier, better looking, and more successful than we really feel. These poses, in fact, are a form of social withdrawal. They may let us pretend that we're more accepted, but the pretense only intensifies our loneliness. So when it comes to our pursuits, when it comes to what we're doing and what it means to be human, again, I have to ask the question, what are we working for? And who is to benefit from all of my success? Who am I leaving it to? There was an art installation back in 2016 called Can't Help Myself by Sun Wan and Ping Yu. 
In this installation commissioned for the Guggenheim Museum in New York, titled Can't Help Myself, the artwork featured an industrial robot arm in a large glass box where it had one task, contain a pool of vicious red liquid seeping out across the floor. You see that. The installation received a revival of sorts via the popular social media application TikTok. And it was during this revival that a new interpretation of the installation began to create an emotional response for viewers. Some of you have seen, may have seen this before. While the liquid itself was not hydraulic fuel, it was interpreted to be the robot's own hydraulic fuel. And that it was in a desperate attempt to save itself as it worked to keep the liquid from escaping any further. And this caused viewers to feel an emotional response that resonated with the futility in their own work. We often work for ourselves rather than asking, how can we work for each other? Because we are in a desperate attempt to survive and to survive through our own work. This emotional response even continued with rumors that eventually the robot died, that it ran out of its own hydraulic fuel or liquid. I asked the question, why is it that we have such an emotional response? Why did the viewers have such an emotional response to this art piece? Again, because they see the futility sometimes in their own work. They feel heavy. They feel a meaninglessness. They've lost the connection between the purpose of what they're doing and the reality of surviving. To adhering to the expectations of maybe other people and the expectations that they have placed on themselves. Verse 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. There's a beauty in the companionship that God has mandated for us. And it's one that sometimes is easily overseen, overlooked, or underappreciated. Most Western cultures operate from an entrenched mindset of independence and individualism. Most of our economic philosophy is based on rugged individualism. That that's the best way that our economy and our work operates. And the notion of needing help or asking for help cultivates fears of feeling inadequate, burdensome, along with the possibility of rejection. We are less likely now more than ever to ask for help than previous generations. And the hard reality, the unfortunate reality, is that most people want to help. They just simply don't know how. And they feel the similar insecurities of rejection by overstepping someone else's independence. Often people who need help feel lonely, feel isolated, um, need help. And a lot of times, the best way that we can help someone that feels lonely or isolated is to simply ask, how can I help you? But on the other end, we have to be able to be willing to receive help. So know that that does not mean weakness. And if anything, to the writer of Ecclesiastes, that, that is a place of strength. That is a place that we've been called to, to ask for help. 
And we've talked about this in the previous series, and I feel like it brings it up here now. This is why the confessional spaces that we've been talking about are so important. That we cannot do life alone. In many spaces that I grew up, in evangelical spaces, there was this move away from legalism and this move, away, move towards liberty. That we have liberty. We have liberty and freedom in Christ. And that is true. There's a lot of truth to that. But the problem is, liberty without accountability is like riding a bicycle blindfolded and expecting not to run into anything. We need to know who's there, who has our back, who understands us, who has compassion for us, who knows me. You have to ask the question, who knows me? To know that there is someone there that I can confide in, be vulnerable with, and be strengthened by is what gives us the bandwidth and hope in our purpose of where God has placed us. We cannot do work alone. We cannot operate with the bandwidth, the emotional and spiritual bandwidth on our own. We need people around us. And we have to ask that question, do we have people around us? Who do I confide in? There is symbolism in this cord of three strands that the writer talks about. Two cords together are good. Three are even better. So the question is, who is this third cord? And I believe in the interpretation of the Ecclesiastes, I believe that the third cord is God. It is the illustration of God. It is the Holy Trinity working as one in the dynamic of our confessional relationships. Whether that is spiritual or professional, God's intention and the kingdom of God is the basis of our work. God has called us to be in relationship with one another, to know one another, to be vulnerable with one another, and in doing so, God holds us together. Because the reality is what God calls us to is to a life where burden, our burdens can be lightened, where the reality of our purpose can empower us and move us. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28-30, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and again, my burden is light. Jesus acknowledges the burdens of life, and he invites people to find rest in him. And this aligns with the idea of the writer of Ecclesiastes. That one handful with tranquility is better than two handfuls with toil. So maybe these questions that I'm asking and what we're talking about today is bringing existential dread. <laughs> asking the question of, is, does what I do matter? Does my work really matter? Is the way that I spend my time, does it matter? Am I using it wisely? And I'll be honest with you. I can't answer that question from you from here today. I can't. But I know that as we have talked about here at Emmaus, life is a journey. And there are people in this room, there's people a part of this community that want to journey and to know that with you. And sometimes it, it, it requires drastic measures. I'm not saying that you need to quit your job. I'm also not saying you shouldn't quit your job. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a plan. But I'm also saying that you shouldn't have faith. I remember for myself, 
I had uh, graduated college, moved to Atlanta, Georgia, was working there. Had a job where I was working from 1 o'clock to about 9 or 10 o'clock in the evening. <clears throat> and I was just out of college. You know, I had a full salary, had health benefits. I was able to sleep in and then go to work, come home late, stay up late, play video games with my friends online, and do it all over again. And there was, I'll be honest, there was existential dread that just began to seep in. The quarter-life crisis. Done with college, this is it. Now what am I supposed to do? And as a place of confession, I went on a mental spiral of downfall. And the Lord had to do a hard work in my life. And I'm not advising this. I'm not advising this. But I finally had enough. And I got up one morning. I went and saw my boss and I said, I'm done. What are you going to, wait, what are you, you're what? You're quitting? Yeah, I'm done. Do you have, you have something else lined up? Nope, I don't. But I know this isn't it. And I took a leap of faith. Came back to Greensboro and started a long journey of process of healing. There were many other things that were happening during that time, but ultimately believing and trusting that God wanted to do something different in my life. Had something different than I imagined. And the question I think that Ecclesiastes, the writer here, is trying to ask us in the, in the midst of hevel and questions about who we are, where we're supposed to be, what's the point of life? I think ultimately what we're being called to do is to trust God. To trust that when we are faithful to him, when we let go of our control, our autonomy, our desires, our expectations, the expectations of the world and the Western culture of having or not having, of being or not being, ultimately when we align with him, that is where true freedom lies. And that is a dangerous, very dangerous, hard, scary thing for us as Westerners to deal with because we are no longer in control. But when we trust that, we will understand that the work that we do now will echo into the work that we will do in the new creation. So that ultimately what we believe and what we are doing is not the hevel that this writer is talking about. It is not meaninglessness. It is not a, ultimately a breath. That the reality of it is that it echoes into a time in the book of Revelation, one of my favorite passages, where we will sit down at a table with Jesus and we will raise glasses and toast to his faithfulness. That at the end, he had the final word, not our own. So I want to leave you with these existential questions this morning. What are you working for? What's the goal? What's the aim? And who are you working for? What, what expectation are you trying to meet? Whose expectation are you trying to meet when I ask that question? Ultimately, what has your heart And last but not least, who sees your heart? I'm going to invite the band up. This is why we are invited to a table, into an altar. Because of the reality of brokenness and the reality of sin and the reality of 
of a narrative that's been given to us in regards to what is expected of us in regards to our culture, that we carry burdens we were never intended to carry, that we have been invited to lay them down, to set them at the feet of Jesus. I think of the story of the woman who comes in as Jesus is sitting, takes a very expensive bottle of perfume and pours it on his feet. And then she takes her hair, which culturally at that time, for her hair to be down and long was, was, a, was a mark of shame. She takes her hair and she cleans Jesus' feet with her hair and wipes it clean. We have been called in that space of vulnerability. We have been called to lay our lives down in such a way that the best of whatever we have earned is laid at the feet of Jesus. The best of who we are is laid at the feet of Jesus. And the reality of his goodness is imprinted on the purpose and the meaning of our life. So I invite you to close your eyes, bow your head. Father, I pray um, that you would continue to do the work that you started. Father, I pray in the midst of our hustle and our bustle and in the due dates and deadlines and the expectations of those around us or those outside of these four walls, God, I pray that the, the roar of that would be dulled so that we could hear you more clearly. Father, to know that you see us and you see our heart, you see our toil, you see our hands, some of, some of the weathered, hard, calloused. And Father, you weep with us and being estranged from our purposes. But Father, you rejoice in calling us son and daughter. And that ultimately that is the identity that you have placed upon us and you want for us. So Father, I pray that over this congregation. I pray that over us as a community. That our eyes would be fixated on you and turn to you. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.